to work hard, spread lace to you, I'll tell of how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Hello, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Wilgress, and I'd like to welcome everyone to this Arise Festival event discussing what would Marx and Engels say about today's global capitalist crisis. Today's forum is hosted by Labour Outlook, which is a fast-growing website bringing you daily news and views from across the left. And this event is part of the socialist series of Friday discussions at Arise, more information of which will be found in the chat during today's event. Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and we can't hope to transform the world without understanding it. So I'm really enjoying these series of Friday discussions and looking forward to Marx and Engels today and our final discussion in the series on the Paris Commune next week. For our discussion today, we are joined by economist Michael Roberts, who some of you would have seen with us at the festival last year. Michael worked in the City of London as an economist for over 40 years and has therefore closely observed the machinations of global capitalism from within the dragon's den. At the same time, he's been a political activist in the labour movement for decades and has written several books that I would recommend, including The Long Depression and Marx 200. We want to have as many questions and comments from the audience as possible in the chat on YouTube. And please, as I already said, let us know where you're tuning in. To tweet about the event, you can tweet at Labour Outlook and at Arise underscore festival. And finally, if you can, please do also donate at the link provided. And crucially, if you haven't done so already, please join the hundreds of others who have bought a ticket for the whole of Arise, the Festival of Left Ideas. We need to sell hundreds of tickets to cover the cost of the amazing month we're enjoying. And um, they start at just £4. So as we know, globally, the economic crisis is deepening, as reflected in a deep cost of living emergency here in Britain. So I'm really looking forward to our speaker now, Michael. Over to you. And after the introduction, we can have some questions and discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Well, um, it is an important uh, question, I think, obviously, as it's uh, working people both in Britain, the US, Europe, elsewhere, and particularly in the so-called global south, the poorer countries of the world, are suffering severely at the moment from high inflation, which is eating into wages and incomes, from the growing threat of technology replacing their jobs, uh, from the terrible situation would exist in climate change and uh, the planet in general, the environment, uh, and many other issues which I'll briefly discuss. But remind ourselves, uh, what would Marx and Engels say about this situation? To remind ourselves what uh, Marx and Engels thought about their situation back in the middle of the 19th century when they were looking at the first developments and emergence of the dominant mode of production, capitalism. Capitalism, that is, production for profit, by those who own the means of production privately, not collectively owned, but owned by a small group of people through companies and so on, while the rest of us worked uh, for them. That system of production for profit uh, was also facing from the very beginning uh, crises, which Marx and Engels pointed out. Engels was the first, actually, to look more closely at the uh, economic nature of capitalist production. And he pointed out as early as 1842 that Capitalism seems to move in cycles of booms and slumps. It doesn't proceed in a straight line upwards, improving your body's conditions. In fact, it goes into slumps on a periodic basis. What, what do we mean by slumps? We mean uh, a fall in the 
production being produced, a fall in investment, and as a result, the laying off of workers, uh, putting them onto the uh, reserve army of labor, onto the scrap heap of unemployment for a period of time so that capitalism can reconstitute itself and go forward again. These series of booms and stumps was identified by Engels in the 1840s. Then Marx developed uh, in the 18, later in 1840s, after the uh, revolution of 1848, up until the writing of Capital in 1867, with publication, those years, he just developed a clear understanding of the nature of the crisis of capitalism, which was based on a profit system and exploitation of workers, but also in its inability in competition with other capitalists to sustain growth on a on a systematic and harmonious basis, increasing uh, not only booms and stumps, but also increasing inequality of income and wealth and leading eventually to the rapacious destruction of the planet. Those points were made by Marx and Engels in the 19th century. And now if we look, here we are in 2023, we can see that many of the things that they identified as being the nature of uh, the difficulties, the contradictions in the capitalist system exist now at an even more extreme level. To help you look at that, I'm just going to give you a few graphs so you can see what it looks like um, from so I can help me understand the position a bit better. So if we're looking at the situation uh, now, we can see that um, there are contradictions that I'm going to identify on, in capitalism now in the 21st century, which existed back in the 19th century, but have now reached an extreme level. First of all, the economic con contradictions. We have regular financial crises. We have uh, deep uh, recessions. That's a fall in production, fall in living standards for people. And we've entered a period actually since uh, the last 15 years, of what I call a long depression in my book, a period of stagnant growth, very low growth, very low productivity, uh, incomes not rising very much. Even if people have got jobs, they're low paid jobs. They're not really ones that can develop themselves in a career or develop their uh, future and their for their families and so on. And we have globally an increase in poverty. This is often de denied officially by the big international organizations, but we do. If you have time to explain why poverty is increased and in what way, I can do so. But we also have rising inequality. By that, I mean the richest income earners are earning even more and the poorest income earners are not catching up. In fact, the gap is widening and not just on income, but also on wealth. Uh, billionaires uh, have increased. There are a very small number of them and they control an increasing amount of the total personal wealth in the world, uh, as I'll show very briefly in, in the slides coming up. And yet uh, the bottom, the vast majority of the world's population own virtually nothing in terms of personal wealth and, in fact, are often in debt. And we've seen the other big contradiction, which has developed particularly over the last hundred years through the industrialization and urbanization and the rapacious expansion of capitalism globally, which Marx and Engels noticed and also predicted. We've now seen the huge damage to the environment, both in terms of global warming and climate change, uh, which is leading to earth, uh, leading to floods, uh, all kinds of uh, problems with the planet and so on, which are going to affect uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people over the next decade, an irreversible position. And then pandemics, we've for the first time, we're seeing really dangerous pathogens spread internationally 
um, into uh, every part of the globe and affecting the population. And of course, the collapse of nature, the destruction of species, both flora and fauna, that we've seen particularly over the last 50 to 100 years. Again, Marx and Engels did look at those and uh, back in the 19th century, and they certainly would have brought those up to our attention now. And the other big uh, issue is the geopolitical rivalry which is developing. As I'll explain if briefly in my comments, uh, capitalism is not growing, it's not boosting its uh, productivity and investment sufficiently because it's under pressure uh, from a falling profitability over a period of time, the expense that it's trying to drive up profits, expand profits, exploit the workers more is not sufficient to maintain its rate of profit. So it's in difficulty, all the, increasingly so. And that's increasing the rivalry between different capitalist powers, particularly the big imperialist powers and those who don't want to join the imperialist bloc. And so we're getting a battle over trade and technology, which could develop even further into military uh, conflict over the next uh, decade or so. Um, Marx and Engels made the fundamental point about capitalism that it has a contradiction that cannot be resolved without getting rid of it. And that contradiction is between the productive development of society and the existing relations of production, which produces contradictions, crises and spasms, as they call it. There's a collision between the production for profit on the one hand and the creation of the wealth for the producers and our communities on the other. And that limitation is expressed particularly in the law of the falling rate of profit, which comes into conflict with the development of production and labor over time. And that's what has proved to be the case over the last 150 years, that the rate of profit back in the middle of the 19th century globally has come down, not in a straight line, to levels that we've that will not may not be able to return to the previous levels, near low, lowest levels that they've ever been in the history of capitalism. And that has resulted in a series of booms and slumps. This is the key contradiction that we're aware of. Here is a picture of booms and slumps in the world and the advanced economies and the emerging economies over the last uh, uh, 60 years. And you can see, if you look at the right-hand side of the scale, that the Pandemic slump of 2020 was probably the worst that we've ever seen on capitalism. Uh, reductions in production and investment really sharp, a bounce back. Uh, but now it seems as slowdown is taking place in 2023 towards uh, yet another slump. And of course, we can see in 2008-9, a similar very big drop. So slumps are a regular feature of capitalism. That's what Marx and Engels would have pointed out in the mid 19th century. And it's turned out to be the case. So these cycles uh, are continuing. And as I argued before, there's a general downturn in the profitability of capital over time, not in a straight line. But that means it's increasingly difficult for capitalism uh, to go forward, to develop productive forces, to improve the conditions of working people, even if they wanted to. They're not increasingly able to do that. So we're entering a period where long booms are giving way to long downturns, what I call a long depression. This is the environment of the 21st century, which uh, has developed from the basic law that uh, Marx developed in capital back in the mid 19th century. And inequality has taken a really disastrous turn for the majority of people. Here is a measure of the wealth, personal wealth amongst adults throughout the world's population. And it's a pyramid. If you see the very top of the pyramid, you see that uh, just a very small number of people, just uh, 
0.7% of the world's population, 33 million, owned 50% of all the personal wealth in the world. And if you look at the bottom of this pyramid, just nearly 75% of the world's population, which is now just coming up to 8 billion, in this case, 3.5 billion adults, own just 2.4% of all the world's personal wealth. So if you were looking to ask yourself where you are on this pyramid, uh, you may be surprised to know those who are viewing here in the UK or elsewhere in the northern economies, that you're probably in that light purple gap there, that top 7.5%. So you didn't know that you were so rich, did you? But uh, uh, if you look at this extreme inequality we have of, of wealth globally, that means that the average uh, householder in the UK or the US is probably in that light uh, purple area because they own a little bit of house maybe with a mortgage or they own a few other, uh, have some, some cash in the bank, uh, but very little. If the vast majority of the world's population not only own nothing, they're actually in debt. So that, that shows how extreme the situation is in the world now. Uh, the capitalist economists are saying, well, would never have predicted that. But that's the position that Marx and Engels would have uh, suggested. So according to a very reasonable estimate now, of the 8 billion people in the world, more than half, 4.2 billion, live in what is poverty by World Bank standards. That's really no more than about 2 to $5 a day that they're earning. And that's the number of people who are earning less than that in the world. That's a demonstration of how poor the world is for the majority of the population. And that increase in poverty has been one billion over the last 35 years. Now, how's that possible? Well, of course, the population has increased. But what has happened is the population has increased. The vast majority of people have not moved out of poverty. They've stayed in poverty. So we see an increase in the level of poverty by, every, by the official measures. If you want to do a more realistic one, it will probably be even higher. And one of the things that Marx and Engels pointed out in the 19th century was that Capitalism drives to reduce the amount of labor it uses they want to, because that costs. Uh, they want to increase uh, their ability to reduce their costs. To do that, they introduce technology, machinery. And now, of course, in the 21st century, we're talking about artificial intelligence and robots and so on to replace human labor in order to boost productivity and profitability for themselves. So uh, the process of technology was one of the features which Marx and Engels pointed out was going to be a feature of capitalism that drive to reduce labor relative to the machinery. And we can see that's taken place over a period. The graph on the right shows you the share uh, going to labor out of total production or income has gradually declined, particularly over the last uh, 40 or 50 years, uh, as the relative value of uh, vesting in machinery has uh, made it worthwhile for capitalists to do that rather than keep uh, labor. Something which Marx predicted would happen as Mark Carney on the quote on the left pointed out when he raised this point. So one of the other features of the 21st century capitalism, which Marx and Engels highlighted, was the way in which jobs will be shed in favour of robots and technology. But of course, the other big issue which perhaps uh, was most people were unaware of in the 20th century has been the dramatic in rise in the average global temperatures around the world, global warming, way above the levels pre-industrial. Um, we're reaching a point now, as you know, if you read the, any of the journals, that uh, we're reaching a point of global warming, which is almost a tipping point, an irreversible turnaround, way beyond the targets 
to control global warming set in various international meetings. We're heading towards 1.8% 1.8 centigrade increase compared to industrial pre-industrial levels, which will mean massive problems in drought, floods, uh, emigration of the population, uninhabitable areas of the world. That's happening fast. It was partly pointed out by Marx and Engels in relation to nature in general, but this atmospheric impact uh, is something new, which we can add to the contradictions of capitalism. And then there is the growing prospect of war, rivalry between the major powers in the world as they fight over uh, land, over technology, over trade, over control of the world's uh, population and human labor. And we're seeing that now with the growing tensions which existed not only just in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also the increasing move by America and its imperialist allies to surround and contain China and uh, stop it becoming a major economic power that would threaten US hegemony. There's real danger, in my view, over the next decade that we could see not just conflicts in Europe between Russia and Ukraine, which is bad enough, but also a major confrontation between the US and its allies in Asia uh, against China around Taiwan. This is the danger of another contradiction. And as Engels and Marx, particularly Engels, pointed out, one of the features of imperialist rivalry, the struggle between capitalist powers uh, in the 19th century was a move towards uh, military conflict. And in his later years, he predicted that uh, because of that imperialist rivalry, there would end up being a worldwide conflagration, which would lead to millions dying and the collapse of many political organizations like the monarchy. That was his, in the First World War, uh, proved that prediction. We hope, but it is a real danger that we're not moving towards a similar situation. So what's the alternative? And Marx and Engels made it clear in the 19th century, and I'll just remind you, we want an egalitarian society where people, uh, all the means of production are owned by uh, the population as a whole, not just in one country, but maybe starting there, but internationally, end the private ownership, which drives uh, uh, capitalism forward on the basis of profit for a very few, uh, to end the situation where states fight each other and where we have armed bodies of men organized to maintain the position and economic power and wealth and privilege of a very small number of people to move to a society where we administer things and services for the population as a whole, uh, where we no longer uh, have the position of uh, different parts of the working class being discriminated and oppressed even in, in even more, uh, not only women, but of course also uh, uh, people of different color and so on, uh, that has argued are, are definitely discriminated against across the world, and of course um, against all kinds of uh, minority communities uh, elsewhere. That continues. Uh, these quotes here are from Marx and Engels' um, uh, Communist Manifesto and from the Goth Critic of the Gotha Program, but nothing has changed from that. So we want the end of oppression of nations and races and to gradually <coughs> change the situation in the minds of people towards a more egalitarian society based on the material organization of all the means of production and resources in commonly owned and democratically run. If we can end private property, we can restore human freedom as a social factor. And that would be the way forward uh, for a better society, which we do not have now. That was the view of Marx and Engels back in the 19th century, and nothing has really changed from that. Uh, so I've given you just a brief 
uh, coverage of the contradictions in modern capitalism and how they relate to what Marx and Engels saw in the 19th century and what they see now. But there are obviously a lot more to say about all the details of that, which we can now discuss if you so wish. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, comrade, and thank you everyone for tuning in. To have a nearly 100 of you with us live in this heat uh, has definitely exceeded my expectations and hopefully people will also be watching this back later in, uh, in the shade this evening. Um, before we get on to the questions, um, just a little announcement. I'm quite excited to say that we, when, as soon as this YouTube session went live, we've had over 100, no, not over 100, over 1,000 different viewers on YouTube for the Socialist Ideas sessions this year and um, this is only the third one so amazing to see such interest and thank you everyone for joining us today. A quick reminder that if you're not done so already please do put your questions and comments in the chat and also tell us where you're tuning in from. We do like to see where different people are joining us from. We're now going to hear very briefly from Patrick Foley, who many of you will know um, from the Labour Outlook team and also part of the Rise Festival. He's going to tell us a bit more about the festival this year and what's coming up and what you can do to support. Over to you, Patrick. Thank you, Matt. And uh, thank you, Michael, because really, really thorough uh, discussion there. And it's, that, it's a privilege, really, isn't it, to have such a level of analysis on a Friday afternoon like today. Uh, I just want to talk to you about the festival and basically thank you all for joining us. Thank you for your support over the month. You know, it's been amazing. As Matt said, a thousand people just, just joining our socialist ideas sessions alone. And that's not including all the other sessions that we've, we've put on. And Arise is a completely volunteer led organisation. Uh, you know, we've, we've ambitiously trying to bring the left together on a, on a huge range of topics with, with uh, chances to hear academics and experts like Michael and and you know a whole range of others um, and it's thank you so much for taking part today and, and for all the other sessions that you've joined but i would like to say you know that while all sessions are streamed for free we do need help covering the costs so i'd like everyone on this call if you haven't already to please consider booking a ticket to the full festival you, you know there's a range of ticket options there for you and it just helps us pay for the digital infrastructure costs and uh, promoting the event and all, and all the other things that go with running a people-powered festival like this one. So please take a look there and, and if you can book a ticket for the, for the entire festival. I'd also like to tell you about a few upcoming sessions. Uh, so the next session in the Socialist Ideas series will be on the Paris Commune and that takes, next Friday, that takes place next Friday lunchtime. And it's with Sandra Bloodworth, who's an Australian Labour historian, and she's a contributor to the book, The Paris Commune, An Ode to Emancipation. And this is a topic we've never discussed on a Labour Outlook Forum or in an Arise session before. So really looking forward to that and you know, expanding our knowledge of international working class history. I'd also like to bring your attention to something we've got coming up on Sunday, another great session. That's a Sunday at 5 p.m. and that's the, the New Colonialism, Resisting Racism and the Exploitation of the Global South. And that's taking place with Assad Raymond from War and Want, Heidi Chow from Debt Justice, Lababa Khalid from Young Labour. And we also have Logan, uh, I believe, as the Arise Festival chair. Um, so, yeah, please do register for that and find out more. And the link will be in the chat there for you all. Uh, we've got another few sessions coming up. I'll just list them more quickly because I don't want to take up too much time. But we got a, a special Latin American session on Monday 
No More Pinochets in Latin America, Stand for Social Progress and Democracy. So that's this Monday, 6.30 p.m. We have got the, foreign, the former Foreign Minister of Ecuador. We've got Brazilian Speaker, Bolivian Speaker, Trade Union Solidarity Guests. So really interesting, that one. Uh, on Wednesday, we have Socialist Economic Policies Explained. Quite a good follow-up to today, really, isn't it? Uh, here's the crisis we face. Well, let's look at some solutions to how we, how we can tackle it. And that will be with Richard Bergen, Laura Smith, uh, Professor Oslem Onoran and Kat Hobbs from the fantastic We Own It campaign. Again, that's this Wednesday. Um, so link again in the chat. Uh, and then we also have a, a quite a special one coming up um, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn and a range of global guests. And that's called A World to Win. And that is on Monday week, so June 26th. And we're looking at guests uh, from Progressive International. For, uh, we've got the president of the party of the European left joining us. Uh, we've got a Peruvian uh, democracy campaigner and, of course, Jeremy himself. So really looking forward to that one. So please do register for that as well. Uh, I'm running out of time, but I'd also like to say, you know, we've got all our all our festival links are, are on the site, are on our link tree. If you miss any sessions, you can watch them back on the YouTube. I know you're all on the YouTube now. We've got an Arise Festival podcast. If you prefer to listen to these things instead, you can check that out. Link in the chat. Um, and I'd like to just finish by saying thank you so much for all the, the regular donors. Thank you for everyone who has booked the ticket. I've seen that there's a few who've even booked the £50 ticket and, you know, it's really generous and, and really helps us to continue doing what we're doing on this platform and keep bringing the left together on a, on a range of really important ideas and, and building our movement and building a platform for positive change. So thank you all so much for donating. donating. If you haven't donated already or if you feel like giving us a little bit, bit more, please look in the chat. There'll be a few links for you there. So that's all from me. And thanks for your time and enjoy the rest of the session. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you to Patrick and all the volunteers, um, Ben, Fraser, everyone who volunteers on the different events for your help. I'd, I and others appreciate it very much. And um, please do keep the questions and comments coming in the chat, including telling us where you're from. Um, greetings to viewers from Winchester, Portsmouth, Paisley, Manchester, London. Petershead, Stroud, Lockteeth, and Stratford upon Haven. And also thanks to uh, usernames KSL52 and I Act Up for Good on YouTube for your support for Arise. And please, if you can, as Patrick said, give that support. Our first question comes from D. Herbert on YouTube, who's been with us for a number of these discussions. And he says, um, it used to be common for Engels to be caricatured as simplifying and misrepresenting Marxist ideas, but this presentation highlights Engels' importance in his own right. How is Engels relevant today? Uh, I think answer that one on its own, Michael, because it's quite specific, but it is very interesting. Yeah, um, Henri Herbert is absolutely right. Um, there is a lot of academics around who say that Engels has... Uh, not only simplified, but even distorted what Marx had to say about uh, capitalism and about uh, the nature of the capitalist state and about socialism as well. Um, and the theory of Marxism in general is coming for a lot of hits. Uh, part of that is because a lot of Western academics didn't like the way in which the uh, Soviet uh, theorists um, described Engels' position and distorted, you could say, uh, Marxist and Engels position uh, and therefore they hit back saying it was all Engels fault for being too simplistic in my view this is total nonsense I wrote a book called Engels 200 to follow up on Marx 200 that was the 200 years since Marx's death in 2018 and then uh, sorry birth and then Engels 200 years in 2020 because um, he's two years younger than Marx 
And in that, I go through not only Engels' economic ideas, but also the uh, answering some of these distortions about Engels' position. I don't think it's true whatsoever that Engels distorted Marx's position. These two uh, people are like peas in a pod. You could argue that Marx was a theorist in a sense. He developed the ideas in a much more uh, detailed way and a much more uh, comprehensive way. Uh, but Engels also, in his own right, made big contributions in the nature of, of historical materialism and the de development of, of, of human society, but also uh, was an excellent uh, exponent of uh, Marxist and socialist ideas within the labor movements in the 19th century and cannot be dismissed as either just a junior partner, but also as somebody who changed Marx's views for the worse. Uh, so I don't accept this argument at all. If you want a refutation of these criticisms, uh, then have a look at my uh, Engels 200 book and other books. One other point, Matt, on this, that one of the criticisms was that Engels, uh, the Marx didn't accept, actually had rejected and thrown out his law of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, which appears in volume three in Capital and other places. And the argument presented by many academics is that Marx dropped this theory. He never used it. And Engels left it in the cap in edited it into volume three when it was unnecessary. And that's why we have this distortion. Again, this is nonsense. Uh, it's unimaginable that Marx would not have de developed these ideas and written them out in conjunction and clarity with uh, Engels. And Engels is merely putting them into an editorial form uh, for volume three of Capital after his death. So this is just a sort of academic distortion, which in many ways destroys the key messages of uh, Marxist economics. And so that's why I don't agree with this view. Thank you. And thank you to the viewers for your questions. Um, our next question relates to the points in your one of your slides about um, how horrendous global inequality and global poverty is. And I suppose it also relates to the next discussion at Arise on Sunday about the new colonialism, as it's called. Um, and that question is, in light of the statistics that you've presented, do you think Trotsky and others' reflections on how capitalism couldn't develop or resolve a crisis in what are often termed as underdeveloped or third world countries on an independent basis has been proven correct? Well, yes, I, th I think so. I think um, what, it sh uh, what we've learned is that uh, over the last 150 years uh, is that if I was looking in a, in a recent uh, we did a recent study on it. If you look at, the, Lenin wrote a uh, pamphlet called Imperialism, the latest stage or last stage of capitalism, if you like, highest stage of capitalism in, in 1915. And he identified just a small number of imperialist companies or countries with multinational firms that dominated the financial and industrial part of the world. And the rest of the countries really were nowhere. They were uh, to be used and exploited the labour in those countries is exploited with the connivance of their own elites. In 100 years or so later, nothing has changed. Basically, there's only about, I would say, 13 to 15 countries that in the advanced capitalist world, you could call it a block of imperialism. And the rest of the world, and that includes uh, places like Russia, India, China, Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia. These countries are not imperialist powers. They're not in the position to operate in a way in which will develop their economies to the same level of uh, we see industrially urbanized and uh, technically as we see in 
the global north and America and so on. And Marx and Engels became aware of that themselves. Marx started off with the view that eventually every capitalist country would, would develop in the image of the most advanced one like Britain and the United States. But he changed his view towards the end of his life and, and raised the fact that many countries weren't going anywhere. They were going to be blocked off from achieving that change and reaching the technical level of the advanced capitalist countries. And that was the view of uh, the Bolshevik leaders, particularly Trotsky, who raised the point that we're moving to a, it was moving to a position where uh, we'd have this division between the very advanced countries and the poor countries who would not develop. So revolutions, if you want, in those poor countries would require uh, would have a small working class and a large uh, agricultural force, but they would have to spread that revolution internationally to the advanced capitalist countries. Otherwise, it would not be possible to achieve uh, socialism in these poor countries. You could say. I'm, in my view, you can't achieve socialism in one country like the United States. We need an international development of uh, society so that all the resources and skills and uh, plans and the facilities of the world are put together in a cooperative way. Even the US could not introduce a socialist society with no money, no state, no inequalities to speak of. Uh, we need the rest of the world. Of course, if the US did have a revolution with a working class revolution, it would very quickly spread to the rest of the world. Uh, and that that was the process. But nevertheless, that's the process that's required for the vast majority of the world now. Countries like Greece can't achieve socialism on their own. Countries like Argentina can't receive uh, achieve socialism on their own. We need an international transformation. Thanks for that, comrade. And I think, yeah, the international point you make also links into the next question that we've got. Um, and also links in, I think, to from a rise's point of view, why we do so much international work in the festival and generally, and because make the bosses organised globally, and we need to do it too. And um, the next one I'm going to read out is more of a comment than a question, but I think it can lead us into a bit of an interesting discussion on the issue of the capitalist crisis and climate change, um, and what Mark Engels and others, obviously more recently, foresaw on that, which you touched upon. In your presentation. That's a viewer called Brian Green on YouTube says that for the first time this June, global temperatures will be up 1.5 degrees. Um, the conference of return of El Nino in a raging solar 25 meter climate crisis is a climaxing upon us. Um, and someone else has said something similar about climate change in the chat. So I just wondered if you'd say a few words on the capitalist crisis and climate change. And also, although it's historical, maybe go back to mention how people within the um, Marx and Engels and the traditions they started have actually looked at the nature and the planet and crisis before the question is given that they have. Yes, um, Brian Green's absolutely right. Of course, we're moving to the situation where tipping point in uh, global warming cannot be reversed and the impact that it's going to have on the globe, uh, both of, not only for human beings, but of course for the rest of the species in the, in the planet, is uh, going to be severe. Uh, and what we've learned from uh, the process of the capitalist mode of production is that it cannot stop that. Uh, it's not just a question of the fact that there's concentration on fossil fuel production and the profits of the big energy companies cannot be sacrificed uh, in the interests of the rest of the, of the world and they have to be sustained, but also uh, market pricing, competition between capitalists trying to... Uh, persuade them through prices and the market to reduce uh, carbon emissions just isn't working. It requires 
political and government action on an international scale to phase out and remove fossil fuel production, to increase renewable energy, to change entirely the way in which we're planning the environment of the world, the destruction and uncontrolled urbanization has to be stopped. We need to develop a planned way in which we organize the way in which human beings live and, uh, and control their lives um, and in, in the interest of the rest of, of the planet. That situation cannot happen under a market capitalist economy. It increasingly uh, uh, is demonstrated by what's happening uh, to us now. This is the 21st century is facing humanity and the planet is facing a major a challenge. And you can call it existential, which could mean the decimation of the uh, civilization that we have now, unless uh, something is done about that. And Marx and Engels raised that in the 19th century. They raised the fact that we saw the ex exploitation not only of the poorer parts of the world by capitalism in general, but also the destruction of nature, the soil, uh, and so on. A lot of work has been done recently academically to raise many of the works uh, and writings that both had written about the question of the destruction of the soil, of nature in general through uh, capitalism. It's called a metabolic rift by some academics, namely there is a difference. Humanity under capitalism has driven a rift between the unity of human beings with the rest of the species in the world as a result of the capitalist process. And we have to end that rift. We have to restore uh, the unity between nature and humanity. And that's the task we have ahead of us in the 21st century. I should just say that if you are interested in the socialist solutions to climate catastrophe, and if peak viewers who are on YouTube click on the icon at the end of the event, the nice YouTube channel, you'll see the uh, recent session we did on the climate catastrophe with a number of different global campaigners and recommend that to people. The next questions I've got here are sort of three questions that I'm going to try and link together, and it's kind of on on ways forward or economic alternatives, I suppose you could call it. Um, we have a viewer on Facebook asking if proposals for wealth and or windfall taxes can effectively tackle the gross inequality we see today. And on YouTube, KSL52 is his username, I presume it's not Keir Starmer, um, <laughs> asks, uh, can we not follow economist American Joseph Stiglitz's advice when he says that the billionaires in America could pay 1% to 2% more in tax to help millions of people. And then sort of linked to this, but much broader is um, a question that I think a lot of us are thinking these days. It's uh, from Peter on YouTube who asks, what can we do to promote socialist ideas today, given the current leadership of the Labour Party? And I suppose that this is also an opportunity for you to talk about sort of economic demands that we should be putting forward as well as tax ones and other ones? Very good questions. Um, let's think about it, guys. If um, if we've got huge profits being made by the energy companies and by food companies, over particularly over the last two years, some people have called it you know, price gouging. Profits, uh, prices have been driven up so they can make huge profits. And it's been right. And this is absolutely destroying the real incomes of the average uh, household, uh, not only in the UK, but in Europe and elsewhere through the rise in energy prices and food prices. I worked out only yesterday that the average US household has experienced over the last two years a 17 percent increase in the prices of the things that they that people buy their services and goods. And when they talk in today's papers that um, inflation is coming, slowly coming down, uh, they forget that 
price has risen by 17% over two years. That's not going to go away. All that's happening is that the increase from 17% is going to be a little less than it was over the last two years. It's still rising. So, so we've had a, a, an increase of, 50, by the end of this year, maybe something like 20% increase in prices. Have we had 20% increases in average incomes and wages over the last two years? We have not. And that doesn't just apply to the UK, but elsewhere uh, around uh, the world, leaving aside uh, the poorer parts of the world where inflation rates are more like 30 or 40 percent in many countries. But is the answer to this profit uh, bonanza for a section of the big energy companies, the tech companies and so on, a windfall tax and other taxes? Well, the answer, yes, why not? We need the tax out of these uh, companies so that we can uh, redistribute those resources uh, to the to improving the conditions of the vast majority of others. A windfall tax on energy and food companies, fair enough. Uh, a 1% tax across the board on transactions conducted in financial in the financial markets that to Joseph Stiglitz and others, of, of, that seems like a, a good idea too. But all I would say is that in some ways, that's not really solving the problem, is it? It's what it's saying is, Capitalism carries on before, as before. Fossil fuel companies carry on before. Food companies carry on before. Tech companies carry on before. Banks carry on doing what they're doing, making all those profits. But we'll just take a little bit of their profits away from them to redistribute uh, to labor and to working people. While we want that uh, extra, it's not going to solve the underlying structure of what's going on in the capitalist economy. Marx and Engels weren't opposed to tax increases, but they said that's not enough. You've got to transform the whole structure of the economy. And the danger, here's the danger, guys, that if we just concentrate on saying, oh, the answer is taxes, we're forgetting about the structure of the economy and dealing with that. And I can think of alternative parts of a, of a good program that Labour or a socialist uh, uh, movement should have. Why don't we have public ownership of the energy companies? And I don't miss mean the retail companies that send your bills to you every month. I mean the big energy companies. I mean Shell, Exxon, BP, the big producers that are making the big profits. We need to bring those into public ownership. Why are we having five or six huge tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, all the rest of those companies, why are they allowed to carry on making mega profits with hardly paying any taxes in many countries? We need public ownership of those companies. Bring them into the planning mechanism. And other, the other big countries, that's the a com companies need to be brought into a planning mechanism where we can plan resources and investments in the interests of people. Let's end the massive military company spending that's going on. Do you know the US government is going to spend $1 trillion on its defense, so-called, uh, in the next year and for the future years, that's way more than it's spending on its public services. That's the federal government. That's an indication of a complete waste of money. Why do we have these arms companies? We need to take them out of uh, control of the of private uh, sector and turn them into something that produces civil production, environmental, green production, and so on. All I would say about uh, Joseph Stiglitz and others who support taxation Fine, but actually, aren't you really just avoiding the real question of grasping the nettle of getting rid of and replacing capitalism with socialist production under public ownership and democratic control? I think um, I think I agree with you there. I think it's good. Good, the uh, wealth tax and stuff. It's very popular to messaging. It 
it can be used to illustrate issues around inequality and power and control. But then once we've illustrated those issues and made those demands, then we need to say that we should, to coin a phrase, take back control and um, and take public ownership forward. And also, I think it's in, in the current context of the Labour Party, it's worth remembering that commitments on water and things like that on public ownership are being rolled back on at a time when the crisis of the private water companies has made them less popular than ever. Um, so you've got people like going on and on about the crisis of water companies and then at the same time saying they won't, uh, they wouldn't support nationalising them anymore. Um, just to say that um, KSL52 isn't Keir Starmer, it's someone called Kirsty Lowe. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kirsty. Kirsty thank you for your <laughs> comments. Um, just quickly on that, and then we'll move on to sort of final bit afterwards. Um, but you started talking linked to it, and I think it's quite important for educative purposes. Is Did you deal with and I know you've done some blogs on this, with the argument that giving workers a sort of fair pay rise in the current context will fuel inflation when it's already very high, because obviously that's something that people see in the newspapers from the government and stuff nearly, and bosses as well, nearly every day. Well, I mean, if you guys have not read my blog, which I do on a regular basis, there's a lot of posts on the question of whether wages cause wage rises call price rises. And the first of all, the empirical evidence is overwhelmingly against that view. There is no evidence that increases in wages cause increases in prices. What tends to happen is that increases in prices force workers to try and look for more wages. And the, the initial increase in prices is not to do with workers asking for more wages. Did that happen uh, during the uh, pandemic slump? No. Uh, did that happen afterwards? No. What we saw is a massive rise in prices in energy, in food and other raw materials around the world, uh, a breakdown of the global uh, supply chain in the world, which drove up uh, prices in general and led to scarcities in many products and the lack of workers to actually produce the things that were needed after the end of the lockdowns and the pandemic. This wasn't the result of wage boosts. And the whole historical period of the last 30 or 40 or 50 years shows that wages as a share of income have actually fallen, not risen. They're not driving up uh, prices at all. So this is a bogus argument, but it's an argument which comes forward from uh, central bank governors like uh, our current governor in the UK, Mr. Bailey, who said workers must resist boosting their wages because they're going to cause inflation. We only got it again from uh, the ECB president, that's the European Central Bank president, Lagarde, only yesterday said that the pro problem is that workers might drive up prices by asking for more wages, they're going to drive up prices. Um, capitalists will be forced to raise their prices to maintain their profits. Well, you know, uh, I might ask the question, if workers increase, get better wages through their demands, why should capitalists raise their prices to maintain their profits? What's what's the point of that? That's an, a, an exploitation of the situation and making the situation worse. Uh, when Marx uh, debated with the actual issue, issue with Thomas Weston in the uh, first International of Working Men, Thomas Weston was a carpenter's union leader. Weston had said, look, we can't ask for wage rises because all that will happen is that the capitalists will raise their prices and we'll be back to where we were, square one. And Marx said, this is nonsense. The evidence doesn't show that. In fact, what we would be doing by driving up wages is squeezing profits. It would make capitalism in a more difficult position, but then that job is to get rid of capitalism, surely. He raised, that's how he raised the question in the, in the minds of the of uh, the union's leadership at that time. And it's the same issue now. And I think uh, we're well aware that the causes of inflation in the recent period in particular 
have not been due to wage rises. If anything, they've been due to profit rises. And they certainly haven't been due uh, to excessive demand by workers for more wages. Thank you. Uh, very helpful for betting one of the main things. Um, I've got one more specific question and then we can move into sort of summing up. Um, this is from Richard Chilvers on YouTube, who says, how would a future society, I presume he's meaning a kind of post-capitalist society, um, take into account failures of central planning? Good question again. Um, it's something that uh, we should probably require a completely different uh, session to go into in detail. But if I start from the point of view that, first of all, we don't want to have a market system where capitalists are fighting over the investment they're making on the basis of their profits and their competition with other capitalists to do that. This is an inefficient, wasteful and uh, ultimately failing system to, to meet the needs of the world's population, as I've described. So it's by instinct or you could say by 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 default that what we need is a commonly owned system of the means of production, all the major sectors of the economy, resources and so on, commonly owned, and then to have a planning mechanism to use that in order to expand the economy in the direction of the majority of humanity. I would point out that big multinational companies, in effect, plan within their companies. They're planning everything out. They're deciding what, uh, forecasting what they think they're going to get in sales, how many workers they're going to need, what sort of technology they're going to need. They're not doing it by prices within the company. They're, the prices are on the basis of selling things on the, on the market. The same principle would apply on a, overall in a planned economy. We wouldn't need prices in the sense of competing with other capitalists on the market. What we would need is a plan about forecasting what we're going, what people need, whether we can produce it, what resources we've got and so on. But that doesn't mean to say you're going to be right. You're going to make mistakes. You, know, you may get that forecasting wrong. Personally, I think the forecasting is getting getting a lot better with all the new computer assisted facilities that now exist to ensure that we know exactly or even more closely what people require and need around the world. And also they can, by participating in the process of planning democratically, they can bring to the attention, if you like, of the planners at the central level exactly uh, what is required. And there's a to and fro all the way through the process. There are many different ways, perhaps, of looking at planning, but I see it as a democratic process without necessarily being always right. If it's wrong, it can be corrected. But remember, under capitalism, if things go wrong, it's not corrected in the interests of the majority of people. It's corrected only in the interests of a small group of people in the capitalists. Uh, so we take the we take uh, the disasters of banking crises and mistakes, if you like, and we have to take them as labour. We don't we don't have the power to change that situation. But under democratic planning, if we make mistakes, then hopefully we can create them democratically. Yes, I think uh, how democracy can help with planning and correct mistakes compared with some of the examples of planning in the past in um, Eastern Europe and elsewhere is quite is quite an interesting discussion and perhaps something we should discuss in depth on a different occasion. I think that would be good. And what I'm going to do now is because we've got about eight, nine minutes left. I'm just going to make a couple of um, announcements now. Then I'm going to sort of throw two final questions to you, Michael, which you can also use as an opportunity to sum up on anything else. So I'm um, just quickly again to say thank you everyone for taking part and to Michael for speaking and to the volunteers. Um, I know people are getting fed up with hearing this, but please do make sure to buy a ticket for the whole of the festival. We do need to sell hundreds of tickets for the cost 
of over 20 events this month. And if you've already got a ticket, why not become a friend of the Rise for £5 a month and help us expand further? And we do hope you can join this event. As I said before, our next discussion in the weekly Socialist Ideas series is next Friday, 1pm on the Paris Commune. And coming up at Arise, we're delighted there will be a major discussion on Latin America on Monday at 6.30 with guests from Ecuador, Brazil and Bolivia. And obviously the Latin American left is making gains again showing a different way of doing things and organising against neoliberalism. So please do join us there. Um, final questions to go to our speaker today are as follows. One is, um, how has the shift to more financial and service-based economies in many developed countries impacted on the global structure of capitalism? And then a, a quite nice one here that I quite like, it's a shorter one, um, and perhaps what you could finish on. If I was to read one book, one book by Marx or Engels, as an introduction, which one should it be? Okay, well, I mean, yes, everybody's aware that we've seen in the last, particularly in the last 50 years, certainly in the last 50 years, a massive increase in the financial sector in all the major capitalist economies, and that the banks and the financial institutions are now a big part of the process of capitalist organisation and political control as well. Uh, and the so the banks are key. And a reminder, guys, um, we talk about public ownership of utilities, energy, perhaps even some industries and so on. But do any labor movements ever talk about public ownership of the financial system? I mean, what is so glaringly obvious that we, if we do not control the financial sector and put it under the control of the people's uh, democratic decisions through public ownership, then they will, we continue to have the disasters and financial crashes that we've had over the over the previous periods of reckless greed, of speculation, out of control. Uh, regulators of governments can't control this. Public ownership of the banks or the big five in the UK or increasingly in the case of the US, if it's through the small banks, the big three, because it's so getting so concentrated. This is an obvious thing that we require, the levers of financial power and the growth of the financial sector uh, makes that glaringly obvious. But we have to say that the financial sector is a sort of parasite or uh, uh, sits on the, on the back of the productive sectors of the capitalist economy in industry and other services that are producing the real value in the economy. All that finance does is redistribute that value uh, in the hand and, and the bankers take their cut. Uh, if that is in trouble and it can, goes into trouble on a regular basis, as I've pointed out in my presentation, then the finance sector cannot avoid also getting into trouble. That is why governments find the end, not, they're bailing out the financial sector in order to maintain the capitalist system as a whole. And that, that financial sector has got into trouble because the productive sector is not progressing in a harmonious and expansive way in order to enable the finance sector to maintain its profits. So when we get collapses in the housing market or collapses in the stock market, or collapses in the bond market. These are products of pressures that are taking place in the productive sector. So the two sectors are inextricably linked and shouldn't be divided, as they often are sometimes by some academic uh, economists. Um, what book should we read? I'll finish on this. Well, I would have said that um, it's very difficult to pin down one book, but I have to say you have to start with the Communist Manifesto. It's all there, uh, an explanation just think how long ago that is, um, 1849, 8, 9, now, 
And if you read that, you get the basic understanding that Marx and Engels have of how they see capitalism, and what needs to be changed to achieve that. I would also think that Engels' book on socialism, utopian and scientific, provides a very uh, clear way and uh, straightforward way of understanding the materialist conception of history and what Marx and Engels mean by a change in, uh, from capitalism to socialism. And perhaps a very simple one is the critique of the Gotha program, where Marx explains what socialism will be like, at least in a broad outline, so that you can understand the alternative uh, to capitalism. Those are fairly simple works. If you really want to get down to the hard nitty gritty on economics, then you're going to have to read uh, Grundrisse and obviously uh, Capital. There are a number of people who provide guides to these now and companions. Uh, so you can find uh, uh, people who will help you, guide you through that work and short versions of that. And finally, I think you should read my blog uh, because I think my blog provides on a fairly regular basis using Marx's economic theory to say what's happening in the world right now and even deals with criticisms about the theory and also criticizes mainstream economics theory as well. And so I think you'd find that useful. And those of you who don't uh, follow the blog, then you should, because it's a very simple thing uh, to do. Um, just to finish, Matt, I'll be putting these slides on my Facebook site, uh, Matt, Michael Roberts' blog Facebook site, so that if you want to sort of gain at the slides that I presented, you can do so there. Thank you, uh, Michael. And if you send them to me, I can put them on Labour Outlook as an upload with this video as well. And we can put the link in the comments to the video afterwards. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, we were a bit concerned about numbers with the heat, but I'm pretty pleased with what we've got. And I'm sure a lot of people will uh, watch it back. Just a final thing people might not know in light of what we were just talking about. The Labour Party actually published uh, its official edition of the Communist Manifesto on its 100th anniversary, which you can now find actually online. Um, Harold Lasky introduction. You can find that PDF now online if people want to look at it. It's quite a fun thing to look at. Thank you to our speaker. Thank you to the audience. And um, we'll see you at the next event. Thank you, everyone.